0: Would you please turn with me to Hebrews 12one 1-2, where we read from God's Word. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Heavenly Father, you are the one who opens the eyes to see. You open the ears to hear. And Lord, I pray today that you would use my unworthy lips to bring your word to penetrate The hearts of those here, so that we would not be just hearers of your word, but doers as well. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, before I came to Nebraska for the second time, because actually I was born here in this town many years ago, I had heard that everybody here was a Cornhuskers fan and you could go out on any weekend and everybody would be wearing red And being from Florida, we would be wearing our orange and blue and probably wouldn't stand out so well. But found out that's not always the case. Maybe some tough years for the Huskers out there. Hopefully, I'm not offending anybody. But I know now that, you know, all of us are not big sports fans. And many of us have never tried to run in a race before. But right now, we are all taking part in a real race. We are all striving in a battle which is more important than any sporting event that you could ever watch in television or even participate in. Now, in a race of any considerable distance, a running race that is, there are many roles that you could find yourself participating in. First, we all know the well-conditioned athlete. He's poised at the front of the crowd, ready to shoot off with a gun, and he's going to take off and lead the pack to the prize the whole way. But there are others They're well trained, but they're amateur athletes. And they consistently progress along the race because of their training, and they look to be sure finishers as well. Now, behind these, we have the even less prepared. These people struggle, they stop along the way, and because they fall so far back at times, they may even lose their bearings. But one thing we could say about all of these people is that at least they are involved in the race for we know that there is a whole other group that is not even participating in this race. And while this passage that we just read through here does not directly speak to this group, and I won't be highlighting their case today, I will make brief mention of them, for if during the sermon, you feel more a part of that crowd looking in on the race rather than actually running, there is a remedy for your convicted soul, and it lies at the foot of the cross. Now, with that being said, instead of focusing on that group of people now, my hope is for the Spirit to bring forth from the Scriptures those things that encourage and strengthen our run so that those who are running today can continue to progress forward towards the prize which Christ has already purchased for us through His sacrifice. Now, if you follow along in your outline, we're looking at those things that first Encourage us in this spiritual run. And before I look at Hebrews with you a little closer, I want to discuss the importance of encouragement as it relates to this race metaphor, which I'll be um, delving into a little bit more throughout the entire sermon. Now, in a lengthy running race, there are many things and people that are encouraging those that are running the race. You have spectators cheering on the runners, support teams providing verbal physical support and of course there are other runners that are pushing you to your limits along the way. Now the effect of this is so great that most long-distance running training plans never once have you running a full length of that race while you're training. And in fact your longest practice run is usually about 75 percent of the total length of that race. Now one of the main reasons for that is that emotionally It is much easier to run the race with these support and encouragement features in place. And so running the race to completion is never in question, although you may have never run that distance before in your life. In the same way, the body of Christ, among other things, has been formed by Christ as a means of encouragement to each other so that we can all reach the end of that race that we're on. Christ has, in fact, made the race precisely to be run this way, having given different people different gifts so that we will discipline and aid not only ourselves, but our brother who is running that very same race. Now turn back with me and we look at Hebrews 12.1. In the first part of the verse we read, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the author clearly directs us here to look first at the witnesses of that race we are participating in. Now, these first group of witnesses we'll look at are those who have borne faithful testimony before us, because they, the faithful saints of the past, are the subject of the immediate context of the passage, while the other witnesses that I'll look at later are merely inferred from this passage in the remainder of the Bible. If you would read back with me in Hebrews 11:32 and 40, as the author of Hebrews closes out this passage describing the heroes of faith, we'll see what the therefore in Hebrews 12:1 is referring to in relation to witnesses. Starting at verse 32. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, Who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain still a better resurrection." Still others others had trials of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and in caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I read this passage, it almost sends shivers up my spine. Because of what these witnesses of the past went through, through their faith. And we see that included in these lists of witnesses are martyrs and a trait of those martyrs being that they are those for whom the world was not worthy. Think about that a second. For whom the world was not worthy. These people are those who have so forsaken the admiration and the love of the world that even the world itself was not worthy of their presence. It speaks so highly of them in that they have so put off their own life And so put on Christ that they have become as he was, one for whom the world was not worthy. I I don't know what it is sometimes about men's groups. Um, You get involved in it and eventually the talk will come around. Some author will put forward that. You know, what would you expect people to say at your funeral about you? Or what would you like to have on your tombstone? Now, I'm pretty sure women's groups don't sit around talking about what they want other women to say to them or to write on their tombstone. And the only reason I bring that up is I, I could think of nothing that could more succinctly describe a life worth living. And that the world was not worthy of you. Just like our Savior, the world was not worthy for him either. In the same way, the Apostle Paul encourages us to similar change in Romans 12:2, where he writes and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, one last thing to remember about this faithful group of witnesses that we've been looking at who encourage us by their lives and also by their death, as we read in this passage, is that we are all one body being made complete together. So it is their hope, as it is ours, that God continues to bring the elect into his family. This hope of unity is expressed also by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, where he writes, Then we, who are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, Meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall all be together always with the Lord. Now, as those running the race, we cannot help but be encouraged by these saints of the past example in life. Yet we can never forget that we are all part of that same race. We are running the same race that they did. And that in the same way that these people, our our example witnesses, we have to perform the same role to those who are coming after us as well. Now, as we run the race, it is not just the faithful that have gone before us that encourage us through their example, but it is those who are running alongside us in the race that are performing the same role. Now, though we are called to do many things for the body of believers, one thing we are commanded to do is to both encourage and to be encouraged in our race. One of the way we, ways that we do this is to share each other's burdens. In Galatians 6, 1-2, Paul writes, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You see it's it's not just enough to run the race alone. For it is Christ who calls on us to support each other in those burdens. Now as we'll see later in the sermon, each runner, each of us in the spiritual race will contend with various perils along the way. And Christ has given us the responsibility and the privilege, the responsibility and the privilege of being there for one another. And as I already looked at earlier, we are all gifted differently for this race such that while we work together, united in effort, each person can make a unique contribution towards the finishing of the race for the entire body. Without this mutual encouragement and spiritual power that exists in the body of Christ, we would undoubtedly struggle mightily under just our own power. In completing that very same race. Now lastly. The triune God. Can be seen intimately involved. In empowering and encouraging us. In Acts 17.28. It's stated in the first part of that verse. For in him. That is God. We live. And we move. And we have our being. In Ephesians 1.3. Paul states. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, we should not forget that while there are other witnesses that are encouraging and supporting us in the race, it is only as Christ works through any person that they can be an encouragement to others. But even beyond that encouragement that he allows others to bring to us, we can see in Ephesians 1.3, he has promised us a provision of every spiritual blessing. Among these being the perseverance to complete the race that he has called us to run. We should not forget that without that initial regenerative act in our life, we too would be a spectator in the race that we're talking about today. So we give thanks to him and we do stand in awe of his grace that we can even call ourselves a participant and not just a spectator in this race. Now, while it is God who calls us to the race, as we have just seen, he doesn't call us to a life of passivity. If I could return back to the race metaphor for a little bit we should understand that a person training for a long race, let's say something on the length of a marathon, cannot sit by idly in the months prior to the event, but must constantly train their body for the rigors that they expect to meet during that event. Now, while one can definitely attempt to run the race in such a condition, their performance would be, I guess, less than optimal, perhaps even dangerous for some, as would be the walk of a Christian who is undisciplined in their spiritual training and their race. Let us look back at Hebrews 12.1 and finish out the verse where we see the author calling on his readers to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, our preparation for the race and our spiritual training, the author points out here, must first be the laying aside of every weight. Now, Ronnie was nice enough to broach this subject a few weeks ago in communion service, if you remember that. And he concentrated heavily on the word weight, but one of the things he said to it, rightly, is that it's difficult to point out specific weights in a person's life because they are usually discerned through self-examination under the light of Scripture and aren't always as obvious as we would consider like a blatant public sin. Now, what I'd like to do here is to expand on the word and the concept of weight that Rodney had talked about a few weeks ago so that we can all better discover what areas of weight we may have in our life. Now the word weight in the Greek, while meant to bring up pictures of bulk or encumbrance or a mass, also carries with it the idea of prominence. And it's this idea of prominence which is important because it more aptly describes what the author is trying to convey when he's using the word weight in this context. Now weight or prominence describes the real life and habitual tendency of people to invert their priorities, thereby placing less important things at the forefront of their life. Now, these things, while they are not inherently sinful or do not start out as sinful, in themselves are a weight that hold us back from running the race with the endurance that we are capable of, as the author of Hebrews so rightly points out here. Now, if we find ourselves in this situation, Matthew 6.33 at least for me, is a great verse to quickly get you back on track in reprioritizing your life. Matthew states here, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Now, as a small refresher, in this last portion of Christ's Sermon on the Mount, He is stressing financial and monetary matters, physical items that every person requires to live, as well as our emotional and emotional and physical tie to all of those things. If we look at the Hebrews passage under the light of what Matthew states here, we see that when we invert our priorities, when we place other things before our mind and strive to attain those ends rather than seeking first the kingdom and allowing God to provide for the needs that he has already promised, by doing this, we unnecessarily lay a burden on ourselves That God has already promised to attend to. And thus we hinder our own run by what is a lack of faith. Now, the thought may occur to some, as it has to be in my life, I know, that a little weight, you know, while not optimal, in the end won't stop me from finishing the race or even running half bad compared to others I see around me as if God describes in the Bible our sanctification as a comparative event with other Christians around us. Now, it is sad to say that such an attitude can creep slowly into our minds over time when the idea of accepting even the slightest extra weight would be scorned by those runners that we've been talking about in a physical race. Now, I can affirm this idea in that One way in which top-line competitive running shoes are marketed is by their weight in mere grams so that a runner looks to minimize the extra weight they carry in every step along that race. I didn't have a weight with a gram on it, so I brought in a penny, which is approximately 2.5 grams. So a little bit, think about that, maybe a... A third of that is a gram. And that's the weight that these runners are trying to shave off their shoes so that they are not putting that extra weight on them. If we would only be that careful in the weights that we tried to trim out of our spiritual race. And it's a little disconcerting to know that racers understand the importance of shedding this weight because they know there is a multiplication of effort of dragging that extra weight throughout the entire length of that race. And we do not know the length of our race and we could be dragging that weight around for a long time. Just the same, we must be disciplined enough to lay aside every weight in our spiritual walk such that each of our steps moves us in the strongest and longest way towards the prize which Christ has already purchased and laid before us. Now, even more than the weights that we allow to burden our spiritual walk, the author lays before us a greater danger. If we look back on that passage again, where he said, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. It's obvious by rereading it there that the sin is the greater danger That we must avoid. Now, earlier when I described the word weight, I explained that it was something characterized as a bulk, an encumbrance, a mass, a prominence. Now, one thing that all these words have in common is that they are very passive sounding. I'll grant you they're heavy, but they're inactive. Compared to the word weight, we see that the greater danger of sin is that it is moving. To ensnare us. Now, the Greek word here can also be translated besets, entangles, hinders, and clings. Where the weight was seen as passive, sin is seen as something actively challenging our walk in a way that does not merely slow us down, but can, under its dominion, completely stop our progress. And even yet, we have not done justice to the passage until we recognize that the sin is said to easily ensnare us. Now, what this means for us is that we do not need to go looking for sin in order to commit it. For sin is ever waiting for its opportunity to seize us. And it is only through constant discipline, carried out through the power of Christ, that we instead put to death that sin that is looking to ensnare us. Now, if I could turn back to the race picture just for a second, we cannot forget that a runner will, just through mere inactivity or laziness, recede in their athletic capability as their muscles atrophy and their cardiovascular capabilities diminish. Just the same, the Christian, by comforting himself with the thought that he can maintain where he is instead of being further transformed, is in danger of the same type of spiritual apathy atrophy and comes dangerously close to putting himself actively in the path of sin by just trying to maintain his place. Now, the author of Hebrews says in one verse, talks so strongly about the power of sin, but I'd like to turn to another passage in the Bible where Paul lays forth the same idea, same claim on the power of sin, but in more emphatic and extended language. If you would turn back with me to Romans 7 and I'll read from 14 to 25 to see another biblical view of the struggle with sin and how it's presented by the the author Paul. Starting at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, we can be thankful after looking at this passage of how Paul describes the battle with sin. We can look at verse 25 where he gives us the answer there. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. He gives us the answer right there in the passage. Jesus Christ. Just as the author of Hebrews here will move from the weight and the sins. And we'll talk about Christ as we get to the next verse. Now, once convinced that we must pursue a life dedicated to laying aside that weight and the sin that we've talked about, we are actually called next to get out and run the race. But the author calls us not just to run the race, but to run it with endurance. Something which is best achieved only if we lay aside the weight and the sin that he talked about earlier. The two go hand in hand with one another. Now the word endurance is often translated here in this passage as patience. But an even more complete or accurate idea here, what the author is looking for is constancy or steadfastness. And an even better definition that I found from the Strong's electronic concordance states that in the New Testament, it, endurance, is the characteristic of a man who is not swerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith, even by the greatest of trials and sufferings. And this is where I think the author of Hebrews has us running the race. Because you see, he's a realist and he's grounded in the truth of Scripture. He's not buying into that fantastical Christian walk that we see out there sometimes, sometimes in churches, a lot of times in books, on the radio, that stress all the glory and none of the bearing of the cross. Instead, this author doesn't picture an imaginary race where you're running downhill all the time and the wind's always pushing at your back. Now, he sees a real spiritual struggle where although we recognize and we train for the hills and other distractions that we find along the way, we have both disciplined our life in the areas of weight and sin and are focused ahead to what should be driving us to the end. Now, I don't want to leave this portion of scripture without focusing a short time on the word race. Because while the word race and the whole race metaphor fits perfectly well with the examples given here, I know that when I read the word race, as someone who's done just a little bit of running, not a lot, it still brings up a more passive picture than what I believe the author is using by the word he has chosen for race. Now, while a running race surely has an element of physical struggle, it's often seen as a personal struggle, looking to beat your best time, even when you're competing against other athletes. But the word the author uses here for race is also used in the Bible to describe a struggle or a battle. And we should never lose sight of that picture that our spiritual development and our walk is not merely a race, but it is a battle against those things that are fighting against us, such as the sin We talked about earlier. Now, if it sounds like I'm beating to death this difference between passivity and activity in the spiritual walk, you're correct. Because I believe it is only through God-empowered activity in our life that we are actually led to the end of the race. I think oftentimes in our walks, we find ourselves at different places in life we see a goal up ahead for the kingdom of God and we sprint out there ahead, maybe so far that we look around and others aren't around us. And we start to get that feeling, maybe a little bit of pride, maybe disappointment, whatever it is, that feeling lingers out there. Or we're the other person and we're not going as fast as the others around us. And our feeling might be different, might be a little envy, might be a little disappointment in our own walk. And the problem here is that While feelings are definitely important in what we do, if you run off of mere feelings and not discipline in your life, eventually, you're going to hit those highs and you can go a long way, but at some point, you're going to hit that low. And if you hit that low and you're burning on just feelings and you're not laying aside the weight and the sin in your life, the outcome will be more than likely that you will just stand still. And if you're standing still... You're a much easier target for sin than you are if you're just moving nice and constant along that race. So keep that in mind for where you are today when you analyze your own life. You know, where are you? Where do you see yourself going? As we'll talk about in this next section of the sermon. And keep that in mind. and Keep moving towards that goal so you do not get to the point where you make no progress in the race. Now, there are many things in a physical race that motivate runners. For some, it's money. Others, a reward. Many do it just for the satisfaction of completing a difficult feat. But what, as Christians, should drive us onward? What should motivate us to perseverance in the faithful running of this spiritual race? If you would turn with me and look at Hebrews 12.2 here. We see the author write, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I think it's clear here from a cursory reading of that verse that our focus should be on Him who has been given all power, all power, and dominion and sits at the right hand of God, Jesus Christ. Paul corroborates this view in Colossians 3 where he calls us to look unto Christ and to focus on Him. In verse 1 and 2 in that chapter, he writes, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your affection on the things above, not on the things of the earth. And in Isaiah 45:22, we see written there, Look unto me, and be ye saved. Look unto me, and be ye saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. See where their look was supposed to be. It was on God. For there is no one else who can do what he can. And these are just a couple of examples I pulled out here. But Scripture is replete with the idea that Christ is our example. Christ is our first love and Christ is He who gave His life so that we could have life in Him. Now to focus, and here I'm talking about that which drives us forward in all of life, to focus on anything else will eventually end up being sinful idolatry. An idolatry which will lead you away from the finish line of the only race that matters. I think one great example of this, this tendency, is the Israelites in the Old Testament. Where their eyes started focusing on God and they walked with Him. But either sooner or later, depending on the time of where we're talking about in the Old Testament, their eyes drifted down, drifted off the heavens, into the earth, onto other nations, onto other people, and eventually onto their religion. And their eyes moved off of God. Always with disastrous consequences, which is why we need to heed the warnings provided by their example. Now, the author doesn't merely stop there and ask that we look to Jesus, but he supports his case with the reasons that we should do so. Now, two side notes here. First of all, don't let anyone ever put you into the category with the idea that Christianity is merely a blind leap of faith. For that could be no further from the truth. The author of Hebrews certainly didn't believe that, as we will see his proofs he put forward here. Neither did Peter, where he writes in 1 Peter 3.15. He asks his readers to always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. And second, we should not forget the audience that the author here is immediately writing to. This community of Jewish believers, early Jewish believers, had taken the audacious and bold step of turning against everything that was important to them. Their family, their traditions, their friends. And some of those things could be considered the weights that we talked about earlier Our clinging to those things, the families, the friends, a religion, a tradition. But see, the problem with hanging on to those things is that as the pressure began to wear down on them in their new faith, the weight of the expectations of those traditions and those people smothered their newfound joy in Christ. Many had turned back and already abandoned the race. And it is fear of more defections that caused the author to write at least this portion of the passage, if not the entire book itself. So among his many arguments, we see an impassioned plea for his readers to turn back to Christ, to keep their focus on Him. Not only because of the work He accomplished on the cross in His humility, as is described later in verse 2, but also because of the glorification of Christ, which is described later in that same verse. And we, just as much as those early Jewish Christians, need to keep our eyes focused on Christ if we want to continue running towards the end of this race. Now, we'll turn back now to the reasons, the proofs, for why the author believes that Christ should be the focus of our race. First, we see him described as the author and the finisher of our faith. Now, for those who look at things from the reform perspective, this is a tremendous aid to our spiritual walk and our hope of perseverance because we know and believe that while it is Christ who saved us while we were yet sinners, it is He that will continue to take us all the way through this journey of our faith. On the other hand, there are many writers who comment on this passage here that Christ is merely being portrayed as just an example of faith. The one who shows how faithful life is to be led from beginning to end. And while there is some truth to that, and we will be talking about in the next uh, section, by constraining ourselves to only a portion of the author's intent, these people gut the verse of its true and full spiritual power, which is the promise of of perseverance in a God that has not only saved us, He continues to uphold us in that salvation throughout eternity. But we need not rest so solely in chapter 12 to see that this is the author's point. Because he reassures us that that is his point in an earlier passage. In Hebrews 5.9, where he writes, and being made perfect, He, Christ, became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Now, the author of Hebrews uses the word author twice, but it's a different word here in Hebrews 5, 9. This word here is even more emphatic than the word used in Hebrews 12 as highlighting the causal aspect of the regeneration by Christ and the salvation of man. But Christ is not just called the author of our faith. He is called the finisher as well. And as to the finishing of the race, I found no other way, better way to express it than as Matthew Henry puts it. He writes, He, Christ, is the finisher of our faith. He is the fulfiller and the fulfilling of all Scripture promises and prophecies. He is the perfecter of the canon of Scripture. He is the finisher of grace and of the work of faith with power in the souls of His people. And He is the judge and the rewarder of their faith. He determines who they are that reach the mark and from Him and in Him, they have the prize. Now, Christ is seen as not only the author and the finisher of our faith, but He is the ultimate example of perseverance or endurance. Now, unlike myself and my family can attest to this, Christ completed all that He did, including His voluntary death, with joy. With joy. And that's one of the places where I'm definitely lacking at. Knowing, among other things, that He was doing the work of the Father in all that He did. Just the same, this should be the mindset of everything we do in life, not just at the high points, but at the low points as well. The deepest struggles, we must keep that joy always before us. Additionally, Christ bore the shame of those closest to him. He endured the terrible humiliation and the pain of the cross, all with joy because He knew at the end of the day where His focus was on the Father. And in the same way, that's why our focus needs to be always on Him. Now lastly, He drives our perseverance in the race because He sits at the right hand of God, seated in power, having been given all power in heaven and earth. And that enough should strengthen us in our spiritual race, knowing that we are empowered By the God of the world who rules all that exists and brings all things to completion according to His will. We, no less than these early Jewish Christians that the author is writing to here, need not get discouraged. We need not leave the race when weight and sin seems to have the upper hand on us. Because Christ Himself went through much worse and endured it all With joy, so that he would be both the author and the finisher of our faith. He will not leave us stranded in this race we are on. Now, I asked you in the beginning to picture a race setting and the various people involved in the race. If you remember back, there was the well conditioned athlete, there was the prepared amateur, those who are struggling and those outside the race. Now, the author of Hebrews did not lay forth this metaphorical picture of a race just to admire his qualities of writing, But he is calling on all of us to take a decisive appraisal of our life. And he is calling us to action. He's calling us to get out and race. He knows that a serious runner will calculate the cost of training. He will plan that training out and then he will execute a disciplined life of action if he wants his run to be successful. Now, it took these early Jews no effort at all to revert back to the Judaism that they came out of, just as it takes us no effort at all to go back to the sin in our life. Yet, despite the difficulties involved, we are being called to a life of discipline and a life of laying aside those weights and sins that we find in our own life under the light of Scripture. I think that all of us need to take the challenge that the author is placing before us. We need to examine our life fully. And as a disciplined runner trains his body, we need to train ourselves spiritually. But we have an advantage over that runner. In that we complete this race knowing that unlike Him, we don't train under our own power. We don't train for a mere medal trophy, fame, or any other reason. But we train under and in the power of Christ. And we train for an existence that goes far beyond this mere earthly race. Lastly, unlike the runner, we don't merely train for ourselves but we train so that we can aid the entire body, all of us that are here and out in the world. So I think that we should never get the idea that by spiritually treading water, we are impacting only ourselves. We need to throw that thought out of our minds because we are in effect not only hindering yourself, your own walk, you're hindering your brother beside you And eventually, you're hindering even those that come after you that will not have the example that we had of those that the author of Hebrews writes about here. We need to keep all those parties in mind when the thought comes in to our mind that we want to just stay where we're at and not progress forward along the race. Now, all of these things being said about the participants in the race, I earlier promised to slightly mention the other group And I would be remiss now if I didn't mention them because there are some out here, possibly today, that know they are only mere observers of the race. Now, some may be far away. They might not even have known that there was a race going on, but there are others and they're oh so close. They've bought the clothes. They've bought the shoes. They're standing in line with everybody else ready to go off with a shot of the gun. But when that gun goes off, they fooled everybody else, but they can't fool themselves because they know they're just looking in on the race. You see, this group of people, they've gotten all ready for the race, but they're standing at the sidelines watching others compete because to them, the struggle that goes on inside the race, the laying aside of the weight and the sin is not worth the prize that stands at the end. Whether you think you're the person far away or you're oh so close, I call on you to reevaluate the value of the prize. Reevaluate the value of Christ compared to the eternal insignificance of the struggle that you will find in the race. Paul states in 2 Corinthians 4 17 and 18 For our light affliction which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The call is the same to each. Christ is calling on you, to focus on Him, to trust in His sacrifice, to live in the faith that He has provided. And He gives Himself, He gives past believers, He gives all of us here to encourage us to persevere and to finish this most important race. Let us go forth and run that race with endurance. Heavenly Father, we know that you have brought us into your family. You are the author and the finisher of our faith. But you call us to a race of activity. You call us to discipline. You call us to action. Lord, we ask that you would move in our lives so that we can, under Your Word, evaluate where we are at. Give us the strength and the understanding to know where we're at, to focus on You at the end, and that we trust in Your power and Your strength to take us each step along that way. Lord, may You touch the hearts of all those that are here, those that are saved and in your family, strengthen them in the race. And those that are outside the race, Lord, would you touch their hearts? Would you move in them so that they can join all of us and running towards the completion of that race, which ends with you? In Jesus' name we pray, Amen.